It has become increasingly difficult to talk about sin and evil, even among Christians. And the temptation is to either resort to therapeutic language, you know, someone is broken or misguided, or we talk, take up the, the talking points of whatever our preferred political narrative is. Consider as a counterexample what Peter Lightheart recently commented about Audrey Hale, the perpetrator of last week's killings at Covenant School in Nashville. He writes this, I'm grateful Nashville murderer Audrey Hale is dead. I admire the courage of the cops who shot her. Without them, more children and staff would have died. Hale deserved it. Justice was done swiftly and decisively. Having said that, we must also say this. Audrey Hale wasn't trash. Her mind was darkened and confused, but she was a young woman who bore the image of God. She had artistic gifts now terribly wasted. She could have had a future. Her parents' lives are shattered. It's become then nearly impossible both to condemn evildoers and to love them, to exult in justice and to lament the devastation that requires deadly justice in the first place. He's right. Even among Christians, it has become nearly impossible both to condemn evil or evildoers like Audrey Hale and to also love her. It's, it's nearly unthinkable to pursue justice and to lament what the cops were forced to rightly do. Well, while a more academic exercise would be to talk through the various cultural forces that have enabled our inability to hold justice and love together, well, this is Good Friday, and I'd much rather focus on Christ and how in Him justice and love come together. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out from his life in Ur of the Chaldeans and tells him that he's going to bless Abraham with land, making him into a mighty nation, and that in turn, he will redeem the world through one of Abraham's offspring. So in other words, through Abraham, God is going to make the world right. He's going to undo all the effects of sin and death, and Abraham and the people who align with him will have life with God forever. Time passes. Abraham follows God's lead, and by the time we come to chapter 15, God re-ups his promise to Abraham, and Abraham again believes him. But even as he believes God, he asks a reasonable question. How do I know that I'm going to receive what you've promised? It isn't a lack of faith question. The text is clear that Abraham believed God. It's rather that he wants a pledge. He wants God to show his commitment in tangible form. Like how a woman rightly should expect some kind of token of seriousness from the man asking to marry her, Abraham wants God to bind himself tangibly to Abraham. His grandson Jacob does something similar when he wrestles with God and asks God to bless him. Now, the way we tend to enter into binding agreements, that is us as modern people, is through signing legal paperwork. When you buy a house or a car or even enter into a marriage, what it ultimately comes down to is pledging your name in a legal declaration of faithfulness. On the one hand, it 
can appear frivolous. It just, it's just your words or a pen, ink and paper. But on the other hand, for those who have ever bought a house or a car or more so gotten married, there's earnest money to be presented and the weight of the moment is palpable. In the ancient world, weighty binding agreements were called covenants and they were a relationship bound in blood and thus were a matter of life and death. If you entered into a covenant with someone, you couldn't just back out of it or refuse to pay or declare bankruptcy. There was no such thing as no-fault divorce. If you did not keep your side of the relationship, it would cost you your life. In Genesis 15, God commands Abraham to take a cow, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon, animals that, that anticipate the Levitical sacrifices and in turn to kill them and to cut the big animals in half. Now picture this. You have a cow, a goat, and a ram cut in half and separated with room enough for two people to walk through them like we would walk through the center aisle of this room. The reason for this is, is because the people making the covenant would walk through the middle of those animals and this symbolized that if either party breaks the terms of the covenant, if either party reneges on their commitment, that party will be slaughtered like these animals. But there's a very unusual detail with the covenant between God and Abraham. God appears to Abraham as a, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. It's the same holy presence that appears to Moses in the burning bush and will lead and protect Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And God's holy, fiery presence walks through the animals alone. Abraham does not walk through those animals. What that means is that the responsibility for keeping the covenant is on God alone. Abraham has no part in ensuring this promise will come to pass, even as he's called to faithfulness, and his children will be too. So by going through the animals alone, God was indicating that he would uphold Abraham's part of the covenant too. God would be both the faithful king and the faithful people, and he would fulfill all the terms of the covenant. Implied with this, and this is made clear in the book of Deuteronomy, God knows up front that Israel will be unfaithful. And so when the people soon after in Israel's history break the covenant, he knows they would not be able to endure the penalty. So he takes the penalty on himself. So even as he is Israel's faithful husband, he would endure the curse of his unfaithful bride. He would endure the justice that was rightly due to her. And Israel didn't just fail. She wasn't merely misguided or broken, making a few mistakes here or there. She straight up rebelled against God, her husband, in often sinful and evil, even heinous ways. The people of God then, by their own agreement to the terms of the covenant, deserved to be slaughtered like the animals in Genesis 15. Well, enter Jesus, the Son of God. Psalm 22 embodies what God has done for unfaithful Israel. It's a 
messianic psalm, and I encourage you to go read it, which, which simply means that it, it pointed forward to Christ. And what is found in Psalm 22 is fulfilled in Jesus with his crucifixion and death. Crucifixion, is, as you know, is arguably one of the most horrific ways ever devised for killing another human. And so what Jesus endured was clearly torture, but more so he faced the penalty for sin and death. He faced the justice we deserve, and in turn, Jesus was slaughtered like the animals. And what's so amazing, so incredible, is that Jesus was both the good Israelite who was faithful to God and the covenant, and like the perfect, blameless Passover lamb, he was the one who took the curse for Israel's unfaithfulness too. We know scripture well enough to know that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, and we can see that worked out with things like the sin offering of Leviticus 4 and 6, in which common people, as opposed to the priestly class of Levites, they would bring an animal, and in this case, a female goat, lay their hands on the animal, the animal in turn symbolically taking the sin of the people, and then the priest would make atonement sacrificing the animal, and then the priest alone would eat it. That is, the holy priest would eat the sin offering of the people, or to put it even more simply, the priest was a sin eater. It's like what Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8 promised. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. You see, in Jesus, the justice of God and the love of God meet. The faithful Israelite, our high priest, atoned for our sin, swallowed sin and death itself by giving himself in love to meet the demands of the covenant. Or as Roman 8 so beautifully puts it, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That is what we celebrate tonight. We have a God who takes sin and evil seriously, who does not shy away from justice, and yet in his great love, he provided a way of forgiveness so that we might be counted as righteous and find life in him. With Good Friday, as Peter Lightheart comments, the Jesus we serve is the Jesus who condemned his accusers and torturers, then prayed for their forgiveness. He's the Savior who so hated sin that he assumed the burden of our sin, 
the Lord who had compassion and then said, go sin no more. With Genesis 15, Psalm 22, Leviticus 4 and 6, Isaiah 25, and Romans 8, all have in common is God's resounding drumbeat of the promise that sin, evil, suffering, and death do not have to be the end of the story. It certainly did not have to be that way for Audrey Hale. We have a covenant-keeping God. Let us, like Abraham, receive his gift of life, looking to Jesus, our high priest, the sin-eater who gave himself for us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks in this time for the sin-eater, our great high priest, Jesus the Christ, and how we have life in him and now have his righteousness and are accounted as your people even now. We thank you for this gift of mercy and life in you, and we pray all of this in his name. Amen.